welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org slash live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org slash give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. Hey, let's let's do this. Let's get in. Let's talk about the news. Is that why you come to church? Because you want to hear more about what's going on in the news? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> BSU. <laughs> Was there a game yesterday? Um. I was scrolling through my news feed this week, and I realized at one point that there was kind of an unspoken question that was guiding all of the news content. It wasn't there on the front. It wasn't like an announced, hey, this is, this is the question that's guiding all the news today. But there was, there was an underlying unspoken question, and it was this, what's wrong in the world today? Right? It was, and it didn't pervade every single story, but that was absolutely the theme. So whether it was this many people were hospitalized or died today, this natural disaster inflicted this much damage and loss today, this political battle had this latest development, this person was accused, accused of doing this stupid or criminal thing, this organization is alleged to have done this stupid or criminal thing. This new variant emerged. And this is exciting. This new study tells us that the sky is indeed falling. Yeah. And it just goes kind of on and on and on ad nauseum, literally till it can make you queasy, till it made me queasy. And the reality is that, that as we read the news, it can leave the, the viewer or the reader, the listener, with the depressing sense that maybe just everything is wrong. But what if we asked a different guiding question? What if instead of asking what's wrong with the world today, what if we started with what's right in the world, with what's good in the world? And I actually want to take a moment to ask that question, just to raise kind of our collective awareness of the fact that there is still, in fact, goodness in our world. And so in just a minute, I'm going to give you a chance to respond. And so if you're here on campus, we'll just kind of have a dialogue. You can call out a few answers. Uh, If you're joining online, depending on which platform you're on, there should be a chat box. And you can type that into your chat box, and it might magically appear on this iPad up here, which is really exciting. Um, But I'll give you, while you're thinking about that, and you can go ahead and type those in, uh, because there's a little bit of a delay. While you're thinking about that, let me give you one illustration. I went for a walk on campus this week, and I went out, and I was walking this direction out by our I-61 Missions and Youth Building, and I saw these two trees that I love every single fall. In fact, I stopped to take a picture of them, so you can see this. Um, Every fall, these two trees are just majestic, and the, the photo doesn't do it justice whatsoever. But every fall, they, they change. Every day, they change. And even throughout the day, so I actually took, I went back a few hours later and took a second picture. This is the same day, just a few hours apart. But look how the color changes, just depending on how the sun is shining on it throughout the day. Can we just toggle back and forth there a little bit? Look at that. Look how it just changes. 
And there's just this variety of colors. I love that it's, it doesn't like, it's not like the whole tree goes crimson at once or orange. It's like this variegated, it's just, it's just beautiful. And every year I love that. And when I pause to just look at it, it reminds me that even, even in a fallen world, even in a world that's, that's not the creation that God first gave us, in a world that's still in, in, in many ways under the power of sin and death, there's still so much goodness in the world. There's residual goodness. And I just stop and go, okay, God, that's good. How about you? Where do you, where do you look around? Where do you see goodness in our world today? We've got random acts of kindness. Someone online has added random acts of kindness. Absolutely. Kindness that's not, that's not earned or deserved. It's simply just given, extended. Possibly not random. Haley Wood is back in town. Absolutely. That was Haley singing this morning. Uh, she's been on tour over the last four months over on the east side of the continental U.S. Welcome back, Haley. What else we got? Thank you for seasons. Yes. Yes. I've been, spent much of my life in tropical environments. I so love living in a place where there's four distinct seasons. Yes. The wonderful rain, the refreshing rain, the soaking rain, people fighting against injustice. That's a, that's a sign of goodness in the world when people are speaking out against injustice. Um, with the medical workers who continue to serve so faithfully in our community, even in the midst of great weariness. Absolutely. Thank you. Families. Families are a place where you experience goodness sometimes, hopefully more often, right? I take, let's take one more online and one more in the room. What was that? Watching sports? Huh. Depending on which team you're watching. Yes. Grandbaby smile? Yes. Yeah. This morning, this morning uh, I got to see um, Clara, Clara came in. Clara Lynn. Clara Lynn's a little baby that was born a few months ago. Clara's here. She's so beautiful. Yeah. Creative minds and technical progress. We add these to the list from online. So beautiful. Well done. And we could go on and, and we could cultivate just a, an awareness that there is much that's right. Although there's many challenges in our world, absolutely. There's also a lot of things that are right. What I want you to notice is that when we reframe the question from what's good to what's, or from what's wrong to what's right, from what's bad to what's good, it changes our perspective. If we're focused on what's wrong in the world, that's in fact what we'll see. And that's what we'll live from. That's, here's the important thing. What we see and the questions we ask, we will live from there. It will show up in how we live our lives, how we experience our world. But if we reframe the question, if we ask what's good in the world, well, there's good to be found too. And that will re be reflected in the way that we experience the world and the way we live. So that brings me to my, my title for today's message. Today, as we continue in our Follow Me series in Mark, the title is Follow Me by Reframing the Question. And what we're going to see today is that the Pharisees approach Jesus with a question, and it's a question that's rooted in the brokenness of the world. It's a question that's rooted in what's wrong in the world. It's, an, it's kind of a news kind of question. But instead of getting caught, in, caught up in debating with the Pharisees about all the various ways that he could respond to their question. And they're asking a real question. It's a, it's a, it's a genuine question that has a, any number of answers that could be debated. 
But that's not where Jesus goes. He doesn't spend his time wrangling with them over the question. Instead, redirects them. And, and later that evening, he redirects his disciples in an even more specific way to an entirely different perspective that begs an entirely different question. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 10 today. If you want to turn there or open your app there, if you can restrain yourself from, uh, from watching your fantasy football league while you've got your app open. That's why I've got mine on mute. Um, Mark 10. Let's look at the context, first of all. Just a couple quick points so we find our context. Mark chapter 10, we are now in the second half of Mark in which Jesus is resolutely moving towards, okay, I'm playing fantasy football this week. I'm competing with the person on the other side of my iPad. So I'm not going to talk about that, Mitchell. Um, He says I'm winning, meaning he's winning, not me. Um, Where was I? Mark 10, we are now in the second half of Mark in which Jesus is resolutely moving towards Jerusalem and all that awaits him there. Here's the thing. This is really important. Jesus knows that when he gets to Jerusalem, he will be crucified. And he's moving there not as a martyr. He's moving there to lay down his life, a living sacrifice. Jesus knows that there will be resurrection on the other side of that, but he knows the pathway to resurrection life goes through his own sacrifice of his life, through his death, through his crucifixion. So he knows that. He's warned his disciples twice already. He's forewarned them about that. There's going to be a third forewarning coming up. Secondly, Jesus has narrowed his focus to be less occupied with the crowds or the general public, and increasingly he's focused on the 12. Mark specifically said, as as Jesus began moving from northern Israel where he'd done his his public ministry and he's heading south towards Jerusalem, that he began focusing on the disciples, less on the crowds. So we're going to see today that he doesn't, he's not ignoring the crowds. He's not, you know, he's not shining the crowds, but he is focused on his disciples. He's preparing them for what will happen to him when in the coming weeks they reach Jerusalem. He's preparing them for what will be accomplished through what happens in Jerusalem. And he's preparing them to continue his mission without his physical presence. So, so to, to summarize that, he's preparing them for a few things. What's going to happen? What that means for them and for all of creation? That there's a, a fundamental change that's going to happen because of what happens through his death and resurrection. That something in all of creation that's available for every person is going to change. And then lastly, what does it look like for them to then live out that and and extend his mission into the world as his followers? So lastly, in Mark 10, the context. In the previous passage, Mark has selected stories that reflect a theme as it relates to Jesus' disciples, to the 12. Okay, they're struggling. Here's the theme. They're struggling to embrace Jesus' worldview and his values. The way he thinks about life, the way he thinks about, about creation, about people, about God, they're struggling to think the way he thinks. And that's important because um, their beliefs will guide their behaviors. And so, so for example, um, this has shown up in repeated conflict. In the last, there's been a theme in the last few passages we've been in where there's conflict, there's argument, there's, there's the disciples wrestling to, to think how Jesus thinks, and he's had to correct them in, some, in sometimes some pretty like, strong rebukes, like stronger than he had previously, but as time's getting short for Jerusalem, as he has to prepare them and there's an urgency, he's gotten a little bit stronger in the way that he corrects them. So, for example, they were, there was a, a moment a few weeks ago in the passage we were in where they were arguing with the scribes. So, 
Jesus followers are arguing with the broader religious community who are not followers of Jesus, but they're arguing with the religious people. And specifically in their time, they were arguing about deliverance ministry. But as they were arguing, there was a boy who, whose life was being devastated by the work of, of, of the enemy and his father that was, that was struggling. And, and they were just kind of marginalized to the periphery while Jesus' followers were arguing with the religious community. If that's not a picture of, of what still happens today, that oftentimes there's a world that is in pain and the church is engaged in conflict with one another or with the broader religious community. Jesus corrected them for that. In last week's passage, they were arguing with, not with the broader religious community, they were arguing with one another. And it was about which one of them was the greatest. This is a passage that Pastor Kenny took us through just beautifully. And he introduced this language of the leastest. That Jesus called them to not ignore the, the people who were marginalized and seemed less important from a, a society perspective, from a, a worldview and values perspective, but to love the leastest, to serve the leastest. So those are a few things that have happened. They're struggling to get it. The disciples, their values, their belief, have been deeply shaped. And here's the thing. Their values, the way they see life, the way they see the way things are, their worldview has been deeply shaped by the culture they live in. They're a product of their culture. That's not, that's not wrong. That's just the way things are. But it wasn't working for them because they weren't getting what Jesus was trying to introduce to them. What we're seeing is that the transformation of their minds and their hearts is taking time. It didn't just happen like Jesus didn't call them to be disciples and then zap them and suddenly they think the way he thinks and they do what he does. They, they've begun on that journey but they're in a transformation process. Do you understand that? They're in a transformation process. So, so the fact that they're still struggling means that the, 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 the process is moving on. And as they walk with Jesus, the process keeps unfolding. We're going to pick up in 10 verse 1. He left there and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. So again, Jesus is, he's focused on the 12, but he's not ignoring the crowds. He's not snubbing the crowds. But Mark says that he moved to a new location. So he moved from where he was to a new place, to Judea, beyond the Jordan. So here's a map. If you take a look at this map, you see uh, the red line that kind of traces Jesus' journey with his disciples. And it starts up in Capernaum, up in the north, on the north part of the Sea of Galilee. And he works his way down and then goes over to the east of the Jordan River and is down there on the eastern side of the Jordan River moving towards the, uh, the northern part of the Dead Sea. So here's the significant thing. First of all, this means that, that the passage that Kenny just took us through last week sequentially happened much earlier than the passage we're in today. But Jesus is continuing to develop this, or Mark's developing this theme of showing how Jesus' followers are struggling to, to allow their minds to be transformed and therefore their lives to be transformed. They're in process, but it's a work in progress, right? So as he picks up, it's still happening. It's still the same theme, but now they're down there in the South. And here's the thing. Jesus, according to Mark, this is the first time that he's done public ministry in this part of Israel, in this, this area of Judea. It's the first time. It's not the first time that, that public ministry has been done in Jesus' name, but it's the first time he's done it. So can anybody remember where it was that, who it was that actually has had their ministry centralized right here in Judea? 
to the east of the Jordan River? John the Baptist. That's right. John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. That's right. This is where he had been centralized. And the challenge with, with uh, that's what well, becomes relevant as we see here in just one moment. 10 verse 2. Good job. Uh, Pharisees came up to him in order to test him, and they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Okay, that's the initial question. That's the question that's rooted in the brokenness of our world. And the question, and Mark tells us right away that it, there's a hidden agenda behind the question that they're asking. Okay, there, there's, he, he calls it a, what? He calls it a test. Some translations call it a trap. And the trap, what's the trap? Think about where he is. Think about who else has been there and what happened to him. Remember what happened to John the Baptist? John the Baptist got canceled, we might say, <laughs> in the most severe manner possible. John the Baptizer was canceled by beheading, literal beheading, when he spoke out against divorce and remarriage as it had been practiced by the king of Judea, by King Herod and his new wife Herodias. Herodias had divorced her husband, Philip, who was also Herod's brother. So she fell in love with her brother, divorced her husband, married his brother. And John, who was proclaiming that there was a, a new king coming for God's people, denounced that and said, that's not the way of God's king. And for that, he was canceled. For that, he was beheaded. And so the test here is, well, if Jesus speaks up and takes a hard line on divorce and remarriage, he could find himself canceled in much the same way. Herod and Herodias are still ruling in Judea. And so he could find himself canceled. That's, you know, the Pharisees, that's actually what they're hoping for, that their, the dirty work will get done, you know, by someone else. So if he takes a hard line, he could find himself canceled. On the other hand, if he takes a soft line on divorce and remarriage, he can be accused of mishandling God's law, of, of softening scripture. And so he, it's kind of this like Jewish Kobayashi Maru, as we say in Star Trek world. It's the, it's Kobayashi Maru is a, is a, what is it? It's, um, what's the word? It's the unwinnable task, yeah. There's language in Star Trek, though. No-win scenario. That's what we're looking for. It's a Jewish no-win scenario. So let's take a look at their question. Their question is this. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Um, Matthew records the same conversation. He gives it a little more detail to it. He says, is it lawful for a man to divorce one's wife for any cause? Okay? So that's, that's really the question. So the... I want you to note this, though. There's a one-sidedness to this question. Did anybody pick up on that? It's not uh, under what circumstances can a spouse divorce their spouse. It's under what circumstances can a man divorce his wife. Okay, that's the, the power scenario in there is pretty one-sided. It's all about what the man chooses in, in the way they're presenting the question. And that's actually in line with something that happened in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, we find the moment at which God's, God's good creation spun out of control. And let me just talk about, okay, so Genesis 3 happens after Genesis 1 and 2. So let's talk about Genesis 1 and 2 for a second. Genesis 1 is where we find creation as God intended, unspoiled by 
man's, mankind's rebellion, un, unspoiled by our rejection of God's ways. And so in Genesis 1, we find God, the creator, making everything. And he's, he's creating everything out of nothing. He's speaking everything into existence. And everything that God speaks, he declares a benediction over, which means he says that it's good. He makes something, he makes trees, and he says, ah, that's good. He makes rivers and mountains, and he looks at them, he savors them, and he says, ah, that's good. And all of this, this goodness and this creation, it, it all builds to a climax when he makes mankind. And it says that he made mankind, male and female, as his image bearers in creation. And he gave them stewardship over his creation. He made them like vice regents over his creation. He said, I've made you this wonderful habitat that you get to live in and manage on, on my behalf. You get to steward this. And so he gives it to him. So that's Genesis 1. Everything's good. And in fact, it says that when he made mankind, it was very good. Not just good, but very good. Image bearers. Genesis 2 kind of zooms back and takes a different perspective. And it zooms in on the moment when God made mankind. And we find out in Genesis 2 that God did not make mankind male and female at the exact same time. There was actually a sequence to it. And he made, he made the male human first. And then we find the first malediction. Not benediction, but malediction. Because God says, he, he, he makes man and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. Okay, this is before the fall. Which means even in the original creation, before anything was, was ruined or, or made uh, toxic, poisoned by sin, that, it, that God intended for us to have a, a capacity and in fact a need for meaningful, intimate relationship. That God made us to be corresponding image bearers who each carry God's image in a different way and to have this deep, intrinsic need and capacity to be joined to another. So that's the way that God created, one in Genesis, or created mankind in 1 and 2. And then in Genesis 3, we see the fall. We see... Uh, mankind uh, choose to reject God's good goodwill. Both of our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, both chose to sin against God. And then we see at that moment that this relationship between male and female, man and wife, that was supposed to be corresponding opposites, joined together side by side, stewarding creation. Suddenly there's a power struggle. And suddenly there's a brokenness. There's a, the, 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 Adam throws his wife under the bus, as it were. God shows up and he says, what happened? And he says, the woman you gave me, she did it. And it's the very first expression of sin and death in the world is that the marriage relationship is, is separated. There's, there's, there's a separation that enters into it. They're not divorced at that point, but there was suddenly a separation they've never experienced. They've experienced creation side by side and suddenly they're on opposite sides of things. Brings us back to the question of the Pharisees. Essentially, they're asking, under what circumstances can a man dispose of his wife? Well, that takes, that's a question rooted in Genesis 3. Because in Genesis 3, and this is so important that we understand this, because this, this gives a framework to so much of what we experience in the world, even today as it relates to gender issues and issues of power. Because what happens is, is in Genesis 3, the, the two that have been side by side, they're standing before God, and God says, this is what you just put in motion. And what he describes to them is a description of the curse they've brought on themselves and creation. The curse they've brought on their relationship with one another. 
It's not a prescription for how things should be. It's a description of what, what things now are. And so he says, he, he just talks to the man about how effective he's going to be within creation, that his effectiveness in, in being a steward of creation and working creation, he was, he was made to work, but now it's going to be with thistles and toil. And then to the woman, he talks about what it's going to be like to bear children in this world. And now there's going to be much pain associated with that. She was always, mankind was always designed to, to repopulate and fill the earth. But now there's going to be a lot of pain associated with that. This is what God says to Eve. He says, he says pain, you'll, you'll experience pain in childbirth, and that's not just the birth process. That's the whole thing, right? We all know that as parents. We all know there's, there's, there's great joy and there's also great pain in a fallen world. But he says to the woman, he says, now your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And that word desire is a word for turning. It says, so up until now, they've both, their posture has been oriented towards God the creator. He's been their source and they've done everything to glorify him. They serve him. And there's this wonderful relationship. But now God says, now your desire is going to be away from me towards your husband and he's going to rule over you. And suddenly within creation, there's this power dynamic. So flash forward thousands of years later is when the Pharisees say, hey, um, under what circumstances can a man abandon that covenant relationship. It's one-sided because of Genesis 3. That's a Genesis 3 question. Their debate, so the Pharisees may have had a hidden agenda in asking their, their debate. Um, at issue was how to interpret Jude, but they, it actually was a real question they had. Deuteronomy 24.1 was a place where in Scripture there's a provision made that... Um, Genesis 24.1 is the primary place in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament that talks about divorce um, in terms of like as a practice. It doesn't actually define the practice. It doesn't say when it should happen. It just simply acknowledges that it will happen and that here's how it should happen in a way that protects the society less powerful woman so it protects her so that she can remarry. And essentially what Moses gave to them in their prescription was you, if, if you divorce your wife, you have to give her a certificate of divorce so that she can go and be remarried, so that she's legally able to remarry. It was actually a protection for her. So that said, it was the reality of living in a fallen world. It assumes the practice does not expound on why, but simply makes a provision. But later generations would come to wrangle and argue over that line if he has found some indecency in her. And the question was, okay, what indecency qualifies as grounds for divorce? This is a Genesis 3 conversation, isn't it? Living in a fallen world. Under what circumstances can I divorce my wife? Under what, under what circumstances can I put aside the wife of my youth? That's a Genesis 3 question. There's two primary schools of thought in Jesus' time. One was the school of Shammai. They said that the only acceptable grounds for divorce and remarriage was adultery. That was the only biblical grounds according to them. There's another school though, within Jesus' contemporaries, it was the school of Hillel. They said almost any grounds were acceptable, including burning a meal. One of their rabbis, Rabbi Akiba, he added that the husband may divorce his wife even if he's found one fairer than she. Which sounds like a bad Disney movie. Someone fairer. 
The modern, so that school, that school of thought was basically, it was the modern day equivalent of no-fault divorce. Okay, so let's take a look at the question, or let's take a look at Jesus' response. He answered them, verse 10, 10 verse 3, he answered them, well, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So that's, this wording is really important. Jesus says, what did Moses command you? And they respond with what Moses allowed. That's a really important distinction. What they found in the law of Moses and in Deuteronomy was not a command reflecting what should be. It was an allowance. It was a concession because of how things are. It wasn't pointing to Genesis 1 and 2. It was pointing to Genesis 3 and says, in light of the hardness of heart that has entered into mankind because of the, of the fall, this is how to do this in a way that, that at least protects the innocent. So we continue with Jesus' response. He says, verse 10, verse 10, 5, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he, meaning Moses, wrote, these, wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus goes back to, not to Genesis 3. They're asking a Genesis 3 question. Jesus says, can we back up a little bit further? Can we go to Genesis 1 and 2 and talk about what God designed mankind for, how he designed this, this organic institution of marriage? And God said that, that when two corresponding image bearers, two, two different but corresponding opposites come together in marriage, physically, emotionally, spiritually, when they pledge themselves together, there's something that happens beyond just the, the physical union or a contract, that spiritually they become one. And so that means that to tear that apart, it, it's not a death, it's, it's an amputation. Only both sides go on living. So Jesus doesn't say it can't be torn apart. He says it shouldn't. Because when you tear something apart, when you amputate, well, that creates violence and scars and pain. Jesus responds by pointing out that the allowance, the concession for divorce, was necessary because of hardness of hearts, because of sin. Spouses will sin against one another in all kinds of ways. And we could, we could draw up a laundry list here of the ways that we can sin against one another. We could actually probably spend the rest of the day doing that, right? There's no shortage. Unfaithfulness, physical abuse, verbal abuse, withholding of affection, abandonment, manipulation, secrecy, lying, selfishness, addictive behaviors. The list goes on and on about the ways that we can inflict violence on one another. But here's the reality. Hardened hearts treat one another in ways that further harden hearts. When we live out of hardened hearts, when we live out of a Genesis 3 heart, we further exacerbate that in one another. And it's just a cycle where hardness of hearts creates hardness of hearts, creates hardness of hearts. And, and at the end of the day, we don't know who's to blame, but we just know that it's untenable to stay together. When the marriage becomes irreparably damaged, the hearts are consumed by hatred, bitterness, unforgiveness, hurt, and pain. Divorce may be the best option left. But here's what, what Jesus is saying. It's no more ideal than it would be to amputate half your body. 
which is why Jesus takes people back to the nature of marriage as designed by God at the beginning of creation. Marriage was designed to be the joining together of two corresponding image bearers of God to become one, binding themselves together in a lifelong covenant, even bearing new life together. Jesus takes these Pharisees back to Genesis 1 and 2 to show that God's intent was to create a new family that would be loving, nurturing, a source of life. This, this Genesis 1, 2, and then 3, this is so formational to all of our lives, to understanding not only our lives, but also what's happening in the world around us. This, this touches on so many issues beyond just divorce or singleness. This touches on, on all the conversations going on about same sex and gender, and how do, we, how do we understand the world that we live in, and also what do we understand what God's ideal was before Sin entered into the world. All of that begs a question that Jesus leaves hanging there, and, it, and, it's, and it's, left un, it's left unaddressed on this side of the cross. Again, remember, Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem, and so he, by saying what he says, he introduces a question that doesn't actually get answered until after the resurrection. But the question is this. If there was a concession made for the reality of a fallen world and hardened hearts, is there also a provision made for a restored world and for new hearts? For hearts and lives that conform to God's original design. That was, in fact, a promise that God had made through the prophet Ezekiel centuries before this time. He said that a time was coming when God was going to move through human beings in a different way. This is what it says, Ezekiel 36. There's a coming day where I will sprinkle clean water on you, You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. This is dealing with imagery of sin. I will sprinkle clean water you. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. A new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you. This is a promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit that was poured out on the followers of Jesus on the other side of of the, the resurrection. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. So here's the question. What if instead of wrangling over how to apply the concession made by Moses, what if they just reframed the entire question? What if they asked there a way to turn back to what God had intended in the beginning? What was his good design for mankind before mankind and all of creation became mired in sin and in the brokenness of a fallen world? with hearts of stone? Was there, in fact, a provision for living out of a new heart? A new heart empowered to love selflessly, to obey radically, and to experience God's good and abundant life. Bottom line, and this is for us as well, the way Jesus responded introduced this question, I believe it's for us as well. Instead of asking on what basis can we end or terminate a dead marriage, what if we asked, for the provision by which we can see marriages last and thrive. Jesus' response seems to have evaded the trap laid by the Pharisees. We, we don't have any sort of... He, he says that, and that seems to be the end of the conversation. He escapes the trap, the Kobayashi Maru. But it, it's given his disciples something to think about, something they continue to chew upon throughout the day. So later that evening, they come together and they say this, In the house, the disciples asked him about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. 
and, and Jesus gives equal agency to both genders, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. When asked privately by his disciples, whom he's preparing for how to live as his, as his image bearers and his missionaries going out into the world, he's very direct. Jesus actually takes a hard stand for them about how marriage should be practiced and about what question they should be asking. They shouldn't be asking how, do we, how and when can we get out of our marriages. We should, they should be asking how do we have lasting, lifelong marriages. Jesus, he addresses the question that was kind of, everybody in their day knew that the real question that was being asked, was being surfaced by those Pharisees was what about what Herodias did? Jesus addresses it directly. He says, that's not, that's not how it should be among my people. The response of the 12 is very telling. We find that actually in Matthew's version. In Matthew's version, when Jesus says that, they say, well, if that's the case, we shouldn't even get married. I just want you to think about how, how cynical they were in their day. We, sometimes we think that, that the world is just, you know, it, it keeps changing and it's, we've never seen things like this. In their day, Jesus' followers said, if we can't get out of a marriage, then we shouldn't get into one. That's, that's, that's the 12 saying that. I don't know if Peter was saying that. Peter's the only one that we know of that was in fact married at this time. But the other 11 are like looking at Peter and they're like, dude, like we dodged a bullet. I don't know about you. That's their response. And the point is this, they're having this idea of wrestling with what Jesus is saying versus how they've been shaped by their culture is a transformation of the mind that's taking time. It's a process. If we were to keep reading, we'd find that they're still not getting Jesus' uh, inverted values of greatness. We see them, the parents come to Jesus with children that they say, would you bless our children? And the disciples push the kids away because they're still not getting what he said about loving the leastest. They're still in process. I want to talk for a moment about application though. So application, the call for followers of Jesus is to lean into the reframed question. Is there a provision for new heart and transformed minds? capable of both obedience and abundance. How would one get that heart? If there is, how would one get that heart? And how could we cooperate with Jesus to allow his transformation to happen? If we recognize that, that we are also very shaped by the society and the culture that we live in, we're shaped, our children are shaped, then how is there a way that we can cooperate with him so that our minds are transformed and correspondingly our behaviors are transformed, our marriages are transformed? And at the same time, we still live in a yet unredeemed world. And we all know too well that marriages both within the church are filled, within the church are filled with as much pain, with as much hard-heartedness as those outside the church. To that end, this is a, this is a difficult topic. This is a, uh, there's so many things that we can't talk about today that this raises real issues for all of us. Things that we're walking through ourselves, things that we're walking through with loved ones things that we've been through and experienced. This touches scar tissue. And so there's all kinds of questions. And I, I just want to give you two, uh, two resources that address this topic in a way that is both theologically faithful and also unfailingly gracious. They, they, to bring those two things together, grace and truth. That's what Jesus did. He brought together grace and truth for a fallen world. These two books, uh, one is called Remarriage After Divorce in Today's Church. Um, and the other is called Divorce and Remarriage in the Church. Uh, and so we'll put those up. If you want to, to get those, maybe take a screenshot of it. 
Um, you can find those on Amazon. We have a few copies of each of those out in Heritage Hall that Pastor Mike will have uh, right in front of the bookstore, but we didn't have a lot of copies. So if you want one of those, uh, those are two resources that I would highly recommend. But for our closing, what I want to do today is equip you. And when I say you, I mean all of us. This goes for marrieds. This goes for singles. This goes for uh, young followers of Jesus. This calls for um, yet-to-be followers of Jesus. This goes for really mature followers of Jesus with your gray hair and whatnot. All right? This is a tool for your toolbox that allows us to participate with Jesus in this transformation process. In the same way that his disciples were walking with him and yet their minds were in a transforming process where they were trying to grasp what it was, that, that how he saw the world. They're trying to grasp what is this promise of, of getting back to creation as God intended in Genesis 1 and 2. There's a tool that we, through which we can do that as well. So um, this is a, helping reframe the question from the concessions to the provision. So this is Titus 2, 11 through 14. This paragraph, I've, I've, um, I've been in this paragraph for a long time. Actually, uh, about 10 years ago as a church, we taught through the book of Titus. And at the time, I challenged the church to memorize this paragraph. I said, I, w- I want to encourage you to memorize this paragraph, commit it to memory so that you can recall at any time and just pray through it. That it can be a tool in your, kind of your disciples' toolbox that you can refer to regularly without even having to go look it up. I did that myself at that time. I, I, I took the challenge to memorize this. And I can, I can honestly say this has been one of the most formational uh, scriptures in my life in terms of getting to open myself to God's transformation and to allow him to do what only he can do. I can't transform my mind, but I can make myself available. Titus 2 does that. So Titus 2 says this, For the grace of God has appeared. Grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. This means this is what Jesus did when Jesus came into creation and he made God's grace available. Grace is defined as God's undeserved love and also his ill-deserved love, his undeserved favor, his ill-deserved favor. That means it's not what we deserved and it's actually the opposite of what we deserve. And so God has come and he he doesn't come with, with wagging a finger to say, you really messed up this world. You messed up your marriages. You must... He comes with grace. And he says, I've come to forgive and I've come to empower you for a different kind of life. The grace of God has appeared. So grace is not only uh, uh, forgiving grace, it's also empowering grace. Empowering grace that would em- enable us to actually live out of a new heart. Not out of the stony hearts that happened in Genesis 3, but out of the new heart, the soft heart, heart empowered and indwelled with the Holy Spirit that was promised in Ezekiel 36. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So there's a word training. Do you catch that? Here's the process. The grace of God has appeared and it's training us. So we don't get formed in one cosmic zap. We don't become a Christian and suddenly we're changed and everything's made new and we, our minds are transformed and our lives are transformed. There are some things that happen in a moment, in an instant. And there's other things that happen over a lifetime of transformation. It's both. It's the immediate and it's the process. And the scripture says that the grace of God has appeared training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions 
and to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly in the present age. So here's why this is so important, because there's ways that we can cooperate with God's transformation process. We can place ourselves before him and say, God, would you teach me to recognize and to renounce the, the, the things that you want me to walk away from? Would you teach me to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions? As it relates to our marriages, would you help me to renounce my own selfishness? There's things that I bring to this relationship that are rooted in selfishness. There grasps for power. They're, there's unforgiveness. There's, there's unbelief. There's a failure to cherish my spouse the way that I'm supposed to. And there's things that you want me to walk towards, so would you empower me with a loving heart, a forgiving heart, a, a, self, a selfless heart? If, if, if a single, if, if you're praying this through this in singleness, you can say, God, would you help me to renounce the ways of, of operating as a single person in our world that I've been shaped by our culture by? There's, there's values and standards about the way that people practice their singleness that I need to renounce. Would you teach me to recognize and renounce those and walk towards a way that, that is godly living, that is Genesis 1 and 2, not Genesis 3? This is, this is for us, for our relationships, for our sexuality. It's for our life in general. It's, it goes for our workplaces. I mean, this, this is ultimately transportable anywhere you go. Teach us to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Which means we live in between the first appearance of Jesus, that's referenced at the beginning of the paragraph, the second appearance of Jesus, which is coming, and in between there, we're in this process. We're being transformed. But can we choose to cooperate with him? One aspect of the Holy Spirit's presence in our life is to train us to recognize and renounce those beliefs and behaviors that have been shaped in us by our society and culture to experience essentially being born again in a fallen world. Here's the thing, church. I'll close with this. Sometimes it's easy as the church to take a look at what's happening in the culture at large and to be critical, to wag our finger, to criticize, to say, it shouldn't be like that. And what I want to suggest to you is that Jesus saved the most, the most stringent description of what marriage should be for his own disciples. It was when he was talking to them in private that he challenged them to a, a very high view of marriage that actually reflected Genesis 1 and 2. He didn't place that on everybody because they're not his disciples. It's not possible to live the kind of marriage that, that Genesis 1 and 2 envisions. It's not possible to live the kind of singleness that Genesis 1 and 2 envisions apart from being born again and having God's Spirit inside of us. And so, church, if we want to be able to have a voice in the way that marriage and singleness is practiced in our world, it has to begin with us. It has to begin with us having marriages that people look at and go, wow, I want something like that. That our marriages are, are winsome and attractive because of the way that we love one another selflessly, the way that we forgive, the way that we're faithful to one another, the way that we're in transformation falling deeper in love with one another, the way that our singleness is practiced with self-control. Until we do that, we have nothing to say to the world. And when we do that, we have everything to say to the world. Close with this. We're not called to echo the culture. 
We're not called to simply echo the culture and live our lives, whether single or married, divorced or widowed. We're not called to just live as an echo of the culture. We're called to live as salt and light. We're called to live in Genesis 1 and 2. We're not called to rail at the culture, to criticize the culture. We're called to model something different. We're called to model people who are being transformed. He it is who gave himself to purify for himself a people for his own possession, a people who are zealous for good works. We're going to close today, and and, um, there's going to be opportunity for some prayer ministry. In fact, we're going to put some words for prayer on the screen that our our ministry team sent this morning. And so um, here's how this is going to work. We're going to close with just kind of some body ministry. We're just going to pray together. And here's why. I think uh, this message about marriage and singleness and uh, divorce and remarriage, it touches on things that are relevant to every one of our lives, whether personally or for our, our spheres of influence, for our immediate families and extended families and friendships. This touches on something for everyone. So what I'd like to just do is to close with some body ministry and then make this, these prayer things available. We have a prayer team and we have a school of kingdom ministry, people that can come and pray with you. And so um, if you see yourself there or you need prayer for anything, we would love to, to have you just come up after the service and, and just gather up here in front of the front rows up here and, and we'll pray with you. But I'd like to close by just pausing. I've said a lot of words. I recognize that. But just to let this settle into our hearts. So would you place yourself in a posture of prayer? What I'd like us to just start with is recognizing, like Jesus' disciples, we too have been shaped by the culture and the society in which we live. There's things, there's assumptions that we have about marriage, about singleness, about our own marriages and and singleness specifically, that reflect Genesis 3 more than Genesis 1 and 2. They reflect a fallen world. They reflect hardness of heart, our experiences, even the pain that we've experienced in marriage is a reflection of Genesis 3, not of what God designed. So can we bring that to him? The pain, the questions, the awareness that we don't see things entirely the way that he does. And can we just ask for a provision of grace for fresh manna today? to reframe the question to say, God, how can I be a person who's increasingly living like what you intended, whether single or married, whether divorced or widowed? I'm living in a way that reflects your intention for mankind in general and for me specifically. Holy Spirit, would you give us a provision of grace? We invite you to to do your work in our hearts, to cleanse our hearts. 
Cleanse our hearts from our idolatry. Cleanse our hearts from our self-centeredness. Or would you restore what we gave away in Genesis 3? Would you restore our relationships to be corresponding image bearers? Or we renounce the, the grasp for power. Instead, we pray that we would model what you intended. Or would you give us the grace to recognize those things in our hearts and minds and in our lives that we need to turn away from, to release, to renounce? Teach us to recognize and renounce and to turn and instead walk towards something different. For the sake of, of the way we carry your image in the world, for the sake of our own lives, for the sake of the children in our marriages, for the sake of the world that's watching, do you train us for a different way of living in this world while we wait for your return? We wouldn't wait for your, your return to be sanctified, but that we would allow your sanctification now, your transformation now. And Holy Spirit, will you make your home in each one of our hearts? Make your home in our hearts. Take possession of us. Occupy and inhabit our hearts for your purposes. Would you lay your finger on anything in us that today you want to change, today you want to bring transformation to? And Lord, as we repent and we renounce those things, would you fill us with new hearts? Would you give us faith for our marriages, Lord, where, where, we're, uh, where we're at the end of our rope, where we're at the end of, of uh, or would you give us new hope and faith? Would you turn our hearts towards one another? Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to have some ministry time up front. Um, if you'd like prayer this morning, we also have a meet and greet in uh, Auditorium 2. Uh, for those that are new and would like to uh, come over and say hi, I'd love to meet you. And, um, and don't forget our night of worship on Wednesday night, right here in the sanctuary at 630. All right. Church, go make the invisible God visible. Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.